Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 4th of November 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined today by Patrick Henningsen and Alex Thompson. Um, right, well, we'll get straight on with it uh, because, of course, uh, Trump is claiming that he's won. Uh, and uh, but then he's saying we'll see you in court. Uh, so, Patrick, welcome to the program. What what are your thoughts on on the events overnight, just briefly? And and uh, has he won? Well, uh, the, the, I, I can't say that uh, we didn't warn people about uh, the possibility uh, of what's unfolding right now uh, in over the last couple of weeks uh, in our election edge uh, programs. Uh, we outlined this very scenario and said it was already being planned. Uh, it's in the works. Uh, so uh, it's, um, you know, going by the numbers, uh, it looks like he has won. Uh, but what uh, clearly seems to have happened uh, is that uh, counting was halted uh, in a number of states, uh, including states that he was uh, surging and winning. Uh, so what's going to happen in the interim now uh, could this just descend into a legal quagmire uh, for uh, days, for weeks? Uh, it's difficult to say. I mean, looking at the electoral map, uh, well, we can talk about the various states because I think you have some some things you want to show as well, right? Uh, yes, but before we do that, let's just remind ourselves uh, with a couple of uh, short clips from your elect election edge specials uh, what you were saying. So let's uh, let's look at the first one here, and then we can comment comment on it uh, when we come back. So, and this also brings up the specter that we talked about last time, post-election chaos. Are any of these uh, late ballot, late voting states going to be the catalyst that the opposition or the challenging party, the Democrats, are going to use for post-election chaos to say that, uh, you know, we can't uh, call an election winner in this general election because we need to wait to count all the ballots in states like North Carolina, in states like Michigan, in states like Pennsylvania, and again, having an Al Franken-type situation like we saw in uh, Minnesota's Senate race in 2008, where it just went on and on and on, and it went really into the weeds. And by the end of it, there's allegations of voter fraud uh, in that race as well. So are we going to see that level of chaos? It looks like that's exactly what we're seeing, Patrick. Yeah, it does. It does. So uh, I think... Uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Trump had a substantial lead when they hit the brakes. Uh, we're talking about north of 600,000 votes ahead uh, in a state like Pennsylvania. Consider that he won Pennsylvania by a margin of uh, approximately 44,000 votes in 2016, <clears throat> going into uh, that situation with a sizable margin. Mind you, they hadn't counted uh, Philadelphia, apparently, uh, in some of the other urban uh, suburban areas, uh, big suburban counties there. Uh, so, but still, uh, just looking at the math, uh, Trump would have Pennsylvania. So, uh, the other states are uh, quite tight. Arizona's quite tight. Nevada's quite tight. Uh, Biden could, uh, the Democrats could take uh, either of those states. Um, but who knows? There could be recounts. There could be, uh, I don't know, election runoffs. Uh, I don't know if it would go that far or not. Um, but Wisconsin, uh, Trump could lose Wisconsin as well. There was a late break and flip in the percentages at the last second uh, in favor of Biden. I mean, Trump well, well, had a, a 
Yeah. Yeah. Let, let, let me just let me just put that up on screen. I, I give a bit of a sneak preview there because you mentioned uh, Wisconsin uh, because this morning uh, that was showing as tending towards red uh, in the in the statistics and the percentages, uh, and then by mid morning it was tending to, towards blue perhaps. So let's just have a look at some of the percentages here. Uh, so we've got. Uh, Pennsylvania, 43, 58, uh, 43 in favor of uh, Biden, 58 in, in favor of Trump. Uh, Michigan, uh, we've got 51. Sorry. Yeah, we've got uh, Wisconsin, 49, 49 now is the latest figure. Arizona, 52, 47. Uh, Nevada, 49, 49. Uh, North Carolina, 49, 48, 50. Now, there's a bit of rounding error in this, which is why they don't necessarily add to, up to 100 uh, percent. Uh, and Georgia. So those, Patrick, those are all the states uh, that during your uh, your election specials, uh, you had identified uh, and suggested that we were going to see this type of scenario. And but it seems incredible to me that, that that they've stopped. They have stopped counting. Yeah. So this is the first time, uh, maybe in history, uh, where uh, the uh, person when the when the person who is a presumptive uh, winner. Uh, if you add up multiple states, Trump was ahead in North Carolina, they stopped counting. Trump was ahead in Georgia, they stopped counting. Trump was ahead in Pennsylvania, they stopped counting. That's three states there. Nevada, Nevada <clears throat> Trump was surging. Uh, and so they've, I believe they're halting counting until Thursday. This is absolutely unprecedented. Normally you'd be, you know, working through the night. So uh, it, it's... It's it's unprecedented. Uh, so this it seems like uh, there is a effort to delay uh, and to buy time uh, in order to get the legal uh, wheels running. Uh, and I think you had a clip by uh, uh, Robert Barnes uh, in Nevada. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. so the second uh, the second clip from uh, from your election specials with Robert Barnes, as you say. Let's uh, watch this and we'll talk about it afterwards. There's some legal challenges. There's a number of uh, court cases. Some of them have gone up to the Supreme Court. Uh, obviously, with your legal background, you're looking at this with great interest. Is there any uh, disruptive potential with any of these cases? I'm talking about Pennsylvania, uh, North Carolina, Wisconsin, uh, possibly in Michigan as well, these, these swing states where these challenges on late voter submissions. What, what do you think about this? Uh, if the election is very, very close, as in within a point in swing states, then we're going to see litigation that will make Bush v. Gore look like a walk in the park. So the uh, it all depends on this. Uh, if Trump wins by two or more in these swing states, election over, nobody has to worry about it. If it's really close, then we're just going to see a massive legal war for the next month. So even with an electoral landslide, let's say Trump achieves something as good or greater than what he achieved in 2016 in terms of electoral votes, you're saying it really comes down to the margins within each of those individual states. Exactly. If the margin is less than a point, you're going to see Democrats will all claim that the voter suppression and absence of being able to turn in their ballots for two weeks after Election Day is the only reason Trump won. And so they'll litigate it and fight it and contest it for as long and as much as possible. If the lead is big enough, they won't fight it. But if the, but if the lead is small, the legal war is coming. I mean, how long could this drag on, this kind of air of uh, undecided results? 
It could go. I mean, Bush v. Gore went all the way to December. Uh, this could go all the way to inauguration day. If it was really, really close, don't be surprised if it gets dragged on. The U.S. Supreme Court has hinted it will not allow that to happen in some of its decisions that it issued and in the decision it issued in Bush v. Gore. But, you know, the, there's a lot of unknown votes on the Supreme Court, so time will tell. But it could easily go all the way up to inauguration day. So that's uh, quite, a, quite a statement there, Patrick, if it goes all the way to inauguration day. Uh, Tr Trump was uh, tweeting this out this morning. Uh, we're up big. You'll notice, by the way, that Twitter is uh, warning us that some or all of the content shared in this tweet is, tweet is disputed and might be misleading about an election or their civic process. But anyway, Trump tweeting out, uh, we're up big, but they're trying to steal the election. Uh, is that what they're attempting to do? I mean, that's what you were suggesting that they would, that they would do, but are they actually going ahead and doing that then? Well, it, it's it's not a question of are they doing it. I mean, they they telegraphed this uh, for weeks. Uh, in fact, for months, uh, this was all the talking points were being injected in the media. Uh, Joe Biden himself on the campaign trail just a couple of days before the election uh, was going on about Trump's going to stop you from voting and all all of these baseless claims. All they were doing was constructing the framework for the narrative that you have now. So. It's, it's not just a case of, of counting votes. That's only part of it. Uh, it's not just uh, you know the legal fight that's going on. It's, it's who is going to control the narrative, who's going to set the framework for the narrative uh, that, that everyone else could, you know, that you can pour the story into. And right now, the Democratic Party, uh, the mainstream media, and Silicon Valley, uh, literally Silicon Valley manually, is helping control the, the narrative through censorship. Uh, but but, you know, they're constructing that narrative. And so they have a tremendous amount of power and they can convince half the population, uh, near half the population, that uh, Trump is somehow uh, tr doing something undemocratic, when in fact the opposite is true. Uh, so they, they've literally uh, coordinated, hit the brakes on a presidential election. This is unprecedented in U.S. history. The playbook is quite obvious here. If you, you, you just look at it, Trump was leading in uh, states. They held they held back the results for ma for the major cities in those states, and then all of a sudden they put the brakes on. This was the case holding back the Philadelphia vote. They did that. Pittsburgh. They did that. Detroit in Michigan. They've done that. Milwaukee and Wisconsin. They've done that. Atlanta held that back as well. Florida. Just to show you how coordinated this was, we called Florida. Uh, up at 21 Wire, we called Florida at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. The reason we called Florida so early is because we already saw the numbers coming in uh, from the best independent pollsters and also the returns and the, the signals from the state in terms of you know, how many ballots were in, what percentage, high 90s. Trump already had a, you know, a multiple point lead. So, I mean, it was a done deal. But the media held back not 9.30 p.m., not 10.30 p.m. They did not call Florida until just before midnight. That's CNN, MSNBC, all, all the major networks. What does that do? That affects a, a phenomenon called late leaners because we have three time zones in the United States. So people who are in the West Coast and the mountain time zones, they're looking at the results from the East Coast. And there is a certain, there's a mathematically proven certain percentage of voters who might make a decision based on impulse, based on emotion at the very last minute. And they're looking at the results 
from the East, East Coast time zone, uh, who people who voted earlier. And they're making that decision when they go late to the polls in mountain time, in uh, Pacific time. I'm talking about Arizona and Nevada. And these will be the two decisive states uh, in, at the end of this, along with Pennsylvania. I mean, they're all decisive, all these that are in play. But that would affect the late leaners. This was a deliberate strategy not to call results in Georgia, not to call results in, uh, in Florida as well. The media held it back, and some state officials might be involved in this as well. I mean, this deserves, uh, you know, this is going to deserve a major inquiry because this is basically, in my opinion, if there's any coordinated effort to uh, manipulate or to do anything that's out of the usual uh, in terms of U.S. elections, then this is a, 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 put, a direct meddling and interference in the U.S. elections. And you could also call it, you, you could put it under the heading of a coup, a soft coup, a law, and now you have the lawfare coup, which is now in play. So, I mean, that's, there's, there's just too many things that are just screaming wrong with, with this. Um, yes. Well, I, I just want to say very, very serious times for the state, and you've encapsulated it there. This is not just sort of dirty politics going on where you've got a left or right, a red or a blue. Um, you've got an attack on the whole democratic structure itself. That structure doesn't fit the underlying political agenda. So that democratic structure with all its faults is just going to be trashed in order to get your cabal into power. That's, that's the way I see it. Is, is that right or not? Uh, yeah, that's, they're, they're, they're willing to uh, you know, impale uh, the main tenets, the main features of this constitutional republic. They're, they're willing to do that, to sacrifice that in order to seize power. And so as we also, I mean, we, we could do a highlight reel of the last uh, election edge specials that we've done and we could pick out so many different things. I mean, one, one of them is they're going to call the Electoral College into question and say that it's no longer fit for purpose and that uh, we should have a popular vote, one man, one vote, one person, one vote, uh, et cetera. And, so, and they'll say the reason it's a uh, problem, uh, the problem has been created by them. So they're saying the reason uh, this problem is happening is because of the Electoral College. What they're really saying is we've lost or we lost in 2016, which they still have, they still don't accept. Uh, and if they they're losing here, uh, they want to change the rules, basically rewrite the rule book. And so they're going to attempt to do that through the courts, not permanently rewrite the rules here, but somehow create such a commotion, create such a interruption, disruption that there's no other uh, it, pe people will will just be so exasperated. This plus all the COVID fear mongering that's going on going into the winter. But so, so right now there's multiple uh, hearings uh, that are already scheduled uh, in, in multiple states. And the, it, looks, it looks like the most likely um, legal mess uh, that's going to pile up is going to be Pennsylvania. And that's going to be the decisive state. Now, Trump could lose uh, all of those other states, but if he, if he holds Pennsylvania and one other, uh, then... Michigan, then that's it. He he's he's won. So you know whatever legal challenges they have in any of these other states, uh, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, so that that's what's happening right now. So there's there's a, the lawyers are already there in Pennsylvania. The White House has said, 
Um, so it, it, this is going to be like the 2000 election, which nearly broke the country politically, um, but just multiply that times four, and then you get an idea of the scale uh, that that it comes to. And, and what's what's also very unfortunate is that uh, Pennsylvania is already a mess in terms of election standards, and they tried to rewrite the state election laws uh, because of COVID. Uh, and so this it's very likely, it's, it's certain the Supreme Court is going to rule on this uh, very, very soon. And it's going to be a very controversial ruling, and uh, there will be rioting in the streets. MSNBC was putting a 1-800 number out, Rachel Maddow, uh, yesterday or the day before, of where they can get involved with or protests. Uh, you know, literally the media is active in fomenting the unrest. I mean, we have, this is, this is, there is no good. There's good. There's no good way out of this that I see. It's going to go. It could go very, very, very bad um, on many different levels um, if yeah. if if this uncertainty is allowed to prevail. Uh, right. So I had uh, two two final points to ask you about. The first, you've sort of answered there with with respect to the media. But how? I mean, are, are there any mainstream media in the United States that are that are treating this honestly? I mean, what about Fox, for example? Who you would think um, were in uh, unfortunately of Trump. no no Fox is uh, part of the problem. I mean Fox called uh, called Arizona uh, while they halted counting in Maricopa County, the largest county in in Arizona. I mean it's one of the largest counties in the country in terms of population. There's something like four and a half million people I think in Maricopa County, and uh, as they stopped counting, uh, Fox basically called Arizona. Uh, so, you know, how is that possible? You know, how, how did, how could Fox have done that before uh, everybody else? So, um, it, it, so Fox is absolutely involved, uh, I think, or at least people within Fox, within their election department are partisans and not on the GOP side either. That's uh, a proven fact. A lot of people have been talking about this over the last 24 hours. Yeah, and then uh, just finally, Patrick, uh, you sent me this tweet earlier. Uh, this is uh, saying there is no way this state is blue. Why? This, I saw a video on Twitter, and yes, I too was given a Sharpie at my polling place in the in penal county, county to vote. What's going on there? Well, this was this was caught on camera. Um, it's uh, it'd be good if you could show the clip, but I know that you can't um, in this particular instance. But um, the the poll poll workers are basically throwing out uh, uh, ballots for Trump, and uh, how they're doing this is they they have pens and they have sharpies, and anybody they're handing the sharpies out um, and to people who they think I guess are Trump voters. And then they're invalidating the ballots because they didn't use a pen. Uh, so there's there's a lot of these types of games going on. Now this is, if any of this abuse is widespread in a state like Arizona, which could come down to, you know, a difference of a few thousand votes, and if this is multiplied across multiple polling uh, locations, then you know that that type of activity could decide the election. Actually, so I mean this is. There's, and this is just one instance, because America is so big, you multiply these problems across different states, there's different sorts of, uh, there's a corrupt political machine in Nevada, which used to be marshaled by Senator Harry Reid, former uh, Democratic uh, Senate Majority Leader, and you know his, his people are still active and in place uh, in Nevada. 
still doing the dirty business that they've been doing for years. So, I mean, that, that's not a partisan statement. That's just a well-known fact. Everybody who lives in this state knows about it. So that's just one example. I mean, this is just uh, such a dirty business. Uh, yeah. And we're seeing that we're seeing it here at a national level, at the highest levels of partisan politics and mainstream media in Silicon Valley colluding together. Uh, those are just the parties we know of colluding. There could be others colluding together uh, to basically fix uh, an election result. Yeah, well, I've got a bit more. I've just got a little bit more, uh, Pat, because I was watching how it was being reported in UK. This is just two tiny examples. So I've got here, um, where are we? This one from The Guardian. So it started off election night and then it suddenly changed with that red line through night to week. But I looked at this this page and I thought to myself, this is just fascinating because we got Biden here top left. So for the Western uh, reader reading left to right, you're straight into Biden. You reinforce it on the right hand side of the screen. You've got a subliminal Biden here. And then, of course, he's put he's put center picture and front and front. But he's very engaged. He's in a very positive, laughing uh, pose uh, with that hand gesture and uh, what have you got we've got Trump put in black he's got the gloved fist sorry I've covered that out with the uh, comment but he's got a raised gloved fist so this is playing on people's uh, emotions and sentiment and then if you look here uh, you've got a crestfallen Trump as if he's the losing candidate and he's been put on the left-hand side of the page to catch the viewer's eye. So the Guardian absolutely up to dirty tricks here. And here's the BBC. Um, Pick this out this morning. So it says US vote goes to wire as Trump falsely claims fraud. Well, where did that actually come from? How does the BBC know that it's false? You follow the link through and it goes to the little inset paragraph. If I bring that up on screen, the president makes baseless claims of fraud and says he will launch a Supreme Court challenge, even though millions of votes are still to be counted. So the whole thing has now been twisted round against Trump, but the BBC hasn't done any proper investigation. And this one interested me because you've mentioned Fox and a couple of people pointed out this man and you, you're better informed on him than I am, Tucker Carlson. Uh, but he had some interesting things to say on Fox. He said there are some specific ways in which we, the media, I've been in it for 30 years, have not been credible. We've lost trust and that's something that's really bad and we need to fix. And the obvious problem is something we said we were going to fix in 2016, which is we didn't know anyone who votes for Trump. And so you get the sense of watching everybody that, hey, it's kind of embarrassing to support Trump. And that's why the rallies were such a huge shock to a lot of people. In the last week, a lot of people all unapologetically saying, I love Donald Trump. And it's like I've never when he says it's like I, if he's talking about Fox and the media, it's like I've never met anybody who says this, who are these people? And he says, in summary, we've got a huge problem in our business. We're being cut off from the country we cover. And I would say a lot of power centers in this country have that problem, but we have that problem in the media. And I sincerely hope that we fix it. So I don't know where you would put uh, Tucker Carlson, but at least he was pointing a finger at the media for being what he said, completely out of touch with the mood of the country and supporting Trump. Yeah, no, uh, Tucker Carlson is spot on. And although 
you know, he works for Fox, which is having huge uh, problems of subterfuge uh, within their newsroom and uh, specifically in the election department. Um, Tucker Carlson's been saying this very, very clearly and accurately for, for years now. And this is really just uh, proof positive of everything that he said and others. Uh, back to The Guardian, just the one thing I'll say about The Guardian, theguardian.org. This is a, a, a foundation or a type of not-for-profit arm of The Guardian. Um, they were seeding the story. Uh, they have a, they're running a campaign called Right to Vote for the last couple of weeks. Okay, we reported on it on Election Edge um, a couple weeks ago. And what they're, what they're doing is uh, basically saying that uh, everyone deserves the right to vote and every vote needs to be counted. And this is being funded by a number of organizations that are sponsoring this campaign. So this is coming out of The Guardian. So the insinuation is that all Americans don't have the right to vote or Americans are being dis disenfranchised, and that's not the case at all. So, so we have meddling, again, going on foreign meddling uh, in the U.S. election. Once again, the British are meddling, it appears, uh, in the U.S. election, but being, some of this is being paid for by people uh, like uh, Craigslist, the founder of Craigslist, uh, for instance, and other, they have foundations, uh, and they're pumping money into The Guardian through theguardian.org to, to pay for this right-to-vote campaign. And this is, these are, some of these are paid-for articles that have been circulating uh, on The Guardian's media outlets now for weeks, okay? So that's the one thing. But the, the last thing I'll say is that if you look at all the polls in all of these swing states, you see one common factor, especially between... Uh, 2016 and 2020, that uh, support for Biden has been eroding consistently uh, all year and it's in many of these uh, bellwether counties, and Trump, Trump support has been surging, okay? That's, a, that's absolutely what we've seen. And in many cases, the, 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 the differences, uh, Trump's leads, uh, are they, they exceed the margin of error of so many of these different surveys. Uh, that are saying this this exact thing. So uh, everything's moving, trending red. Everything's trending Trump, uh, and Biden's support is is hemorrhaging in so many of these key bellwether counties. So I mean, that's pretty consistent across multiple uh, battleground states. So when you see trends like this, and then you see people stopping the the vote counting in multiple cities in a coordinated fashion, and the media who have been setting this talking point up. Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden himself, they've all been seeding this talking point. This is absolutely coordinated. This has been planned. Uh, we talked about the election, uh, uh, the, the integrity transition project, or the, the, the transition integrity project, uh, which is a deep state outfit that was wargaming this uh, through the summer. Okay, we reported on that as well. So, I mean, th these are not trivial things. This is a coordinate. They've had to do it out in the open to some degree. But there is dirty stuff going on in the back rooms, clearly. But they've also done the preparation for this through the media out in the open. So everybody can see the evidence. This didn't just appear out of nowhere. They don't have they don't all have the same crystal ball that they could act. So I mean, all we were doing, Mike and Brian, was we were just looking at what they were saying for the last three months. And we made an analysis and we reported on it to try to warn uh, people, who anybody who was listening, that this is exactly what was being planned, chapter and verse.
Yeah. Uh, yeah, indeed. Thank you very much, Patrick. Uh, let me uh, bring Alex uh, onto the programme. Uh, Alex, hopefully the technical gremlins have sorted out. Uh, I don't know how much of that you, you've, you've uh, heard, but uh, what are your thoughts on what's been going on? To keep it short and sweet, Mike, I would say that this underlines the need for the uh, podcast series that you and I and David Scott have started called A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, because in a couple of episodes hence, so about a month from now probably, we will be covering these twin concepts of democracy and the rule of law. These are the things which our two nations, the United States and the United Kingdom, have been bombing people to hell for. You must accept a democracy and the rule of law. And here we have, under the rhetoric of everyone must have the chance to vote, but what's the practice? Don't listen to the, uh, uh, the lips, you know, think of Arnold Toynbee denying with our lips what we do with our hands. Well, look at the hands. Uh, in states across uh, four time zones, it's, okay, guys, stop counting. Too many of the wrong kind of votes are coming in tonight. So there you have the democracy and the rule of law. And don't think that Britain, with its exclusively low-tech, paper-based ballot system, is immune to these kinds of problems, because like a lot of continental Europe, and the US even more so, uh, we have postal ballot fraud on a massive scale. Oregon was the first US state to move to postal only. Uh, parts of Australia, some states have had that as well. Uh, it's in the bag, it's true in more senses than one. Uh, indeed, right. Yeah. Well, we, we just have to wait at the moment, but big trouble ahead for the US, I think. Yes, indeed. Okay, well, look, we've got to move on. Uh, now let's uh, look at the latest excess mortality statistics from the Office for National Statistics for COVID-19 in the UK. Uh, and let's just remind you that week 13 is when the preview, the first lockdown started. Uh, and uh, well, if we uh, look at those lockdown deaths, uh, the question is, are we going to see uh, the same type of lockdown deaths now? We're starting to see a little bit of excess mortality creep in in the last couple of weeks that are available uh, via the ONS statistics. But again, if we look at, uh, at where this uh, excess mortality is actually happening, uh, well, this is week 41, so this is two weeks before the latest statistics. Uh, and at that point, the only excess mortality that was going on was in uh, people's homes, uh, in private residential homes, not in care homes or in hospitals. Uh, one week later, we started to see a hint of a little bit of excess mortality in the care homes, but still not in hospitals, still people's homes, the main place of death. Uh, and this week, the latest week, this is uh, running up to week 43, uh, we find that uh, hospitals pretty much on the five-year average, care homes back to pretty much being on the five-year average, but the number of people dying in their own homes is uh, becoming more and more excess as time goes on. Sure. Um, so we'll just put a ring around that. So that, I think, uh, really spells it out. Brian, you know, there is a claim uh, in the mainstream press at the NHS uh, this winter is going to attempt to maintain normal service while it still copes with COVID, as that, that's the way it's being described. But the evidence is showing that that's not what's happening. Yeah, and so, um, somebody's just said in our chat box that in Scotland, the excess deaths in homes, 45% up. So we'll just report that as, as, as it's given. Yes. Now, uh, two days ago, the BBC published this article, T-cell respond, response lasts six months after COVID infection. Um, and uh, this really struck me because I'd seen the already seen the the uh, article or the, the scientific paper that uh, uh, that this article was about. And that isn't quite what it said. The implication now correct me if you take it a different way, Brian, but the implication of that headline is that T cell response lasts six months. And that's it. 
Yes. Yeah. Right. That's what people would take out of reading that headline. And if you read on through the article, that, that they don't say anything to, to, to contradict that position. Now, this was the uh, paper that they were citing. Um, the cellular immunity to SARS-CoV-2 found in six months in non-hospitalized individuals. Um, and the, this is what it said. And this is the key statement. This indicates that a rust, robust cellular memory against the virus persists for at least six months. Now, of course, they're doing some research and of course, we're only into this thing for six months or seven or eight months, but, but they probably can't say that, it, uh, that the, it, it's guaranteed to last longer than six months at this stage because they, we haven't got past that point in time yet. But nonetheless, their statement was that the virus, that the, the, the cellular memory against the virus persists for at least six months. They weren't saying only six months. I challenged the, uh, uh, the journalist in inverted commas on Twitter about this and her response was this. Uh, when there's evidence the response lasts longer, I can report it at that point then. Hardly fake news, she said. Uh, but the problem is that of course, She's supposed to be a health journalist at the BBC, so she must know that there's at least six other studies uh, that are reported T-cell uh, reactivity against SARS-CoV-2. Um, and so, you know, there are a host of paper after paper about this. And then in this study, uh, donor blood specimens obtained in the US between 2015 and 2018, 50% displayed various forms of T-cell reactivity to SARS-CoV-2. Well, of course, SARS-CoV-2 allegedly wasn't circulating at that stage, so that, that uh, immune response can't have been uh, from uh, having already been infected with SARS-CoV-2. Uh, similar studies in the Netherlands, in Germany, in Singapore, UK and Sweden. There's studies everywhere talking about this. Uh, here's another one, pre-existing, well, in fact, this one, uh, is, is not about SARS-CoV-2. This is about H1N1 influenza viruses, uh, pre-existing immunity against swine origin. And the, the point here is that in, in towards the end of 2009, uh, several months after the World Health Organization had declared H1N1 uh, to be a global pandemic, this paper uh, was explaining why this so-called novel virus, which it was at the time, uh, wasn't causing more severe infections than seasonal flu. Uh, and the answer was because of pre-existing immunological responses in the adult population, particularly with T cells. They're known to blunt disease severity and other studies came to the same conclusion. So study after study showing T cell immunity much longer than six months. Uh, and we'll just remind everybody once again what the various uh, proper scientists at uh, Oxford University making the point. Here's uh, Sarah Gilbert. Uh, it's possible that we're underestimating the natural or already acquired immunity to this virus. Uh, there's certainly evidence that people have not developed antibodies, but have developed a T cell response. And this is Sir John Bell saying, uh, so there's probably background T cell immunity in people before they see the coronavirus. Uh, those T cells get a bit tired once you're beyond the age of 65 and may not be as effective at removing a virus. So I'm afraid, despite uh, the uh, Philippa's demands that this is not fake news, I'm putting the fake news label on that. Uh, Patrick, maybe I could just ask you, do you think that's unfair of me? 
Ah, Patrick's uh, dropped off. Do you think that's unfair of me, Brian? Well, I don't know. I, I was just smiling to myself because, of course, Philippa Roxby, the BBC lady, is just going to report the spin that her editorial team have told her. She will stay on the line and defend that line. Otherwise, she's not going to have a job. Um, so. Yes, so that brings us on to this then. There's a health service journal and uh, the headline here is exclusive hospitals 70% more full than in April. Uh, there are 70% more people in hospital now as when England was approaching its spring COVID-19 peak and twice as many non-COVID patients according to official figures leaked to HSJ. So this is a leaked figures. Now that in itself is interesting because of course, it is impossible to get publicly available figures about hospital uh, occupancy at the moment. Uh, they're distributed, it seems, in a myriad of different places and it's very, very hard uh, to, to get to the bottom of it. But this article then goes on to say, uh, the information also shows that there are now 13% more patients than there were on the 3rd of April in mechanical ventilation beds. Late March saw a national cancellation of most planned care, large reductions in emergency admissions and a huge programme to discharge patients home or to care homes. The NHS is now trying to maintain planned care where possible. Emergency activity has so far not significantly dipped this time and uh, winter will keep it higher. Uh, there are also indications it's become harder to discharge patients from hospital than it was in April. Well, I would dispute that as we're saying from those statistics I showed earlier about where people are dying at the moment. Uh, and they said, this was the key point, nationally acute trust occupancy is 84% as of the 2nd of November. So 84% is what it is as of the 2nd of November from late statistics. But the problem is that normally at this time of year, we would expect to see the average is 85%. So actually we're below the average of occupancy. This uh, average is over about the last 10 years. Um, so the headline suggesting that this was 70% more occupancy than in April, focusing on that statistic rather than on the fact that uh, the occupancy is below the average of the last 10 years. I'm afraid I'm putting fake news label on this as well. And this is a fairly big problem, Brian, that uh, we are seeing the media, just as in the United States with the election, pulling an agenda rather than reporting the truth. That's exactly what's going on, Mike. But of course, we've got the government pulling the strings of the media, at least to some extent. We could talk about the, the influence of the big media corporations on the government, but we'll say we've got the government certainly using the BBC to get the line out. Now, at the weekend, we had the Alternative View talk, which uh, went extremely well. I'm just going to bring up one segment that I covered there was the use of, the, uh, of applied behavioural psychology by the British government. I, I uh, spoke about this book. Uh, if people don't believe that the British government is using this applied behavioural psychology to change the way we think and behave, get a copy of this because the detail is astonishing. It's called Changing Behaviours on the Rise of the Psychological State. It's written by three academics, uh, Professor Jones here, Professor Whitehead and Dr Jessica uh, Poikett. And basically, they give great detail about the penetration of these techniques in, in the British government and the fact that has been unleashed on the public. Uh, if you look at just the overstatement, this groundbreaking book provides a meticulously researched history of the rise of a new state that aims to govern people by changing their behaviour 
through influencing or at least claiming to influence their psyche with examples from finance transport health and the environment it also illustrates the struggles of citizens who fight against this new agenda of government the book shows how deeply the psyche has become a different site of power and hence a different object of knowledge over the last two or three decades that is a gross understatement because the book itself shows um, the massive amount of uh, money and time that the government's putting into using this stuff just as a very quick summary here this is a, a table in the book uh, so it's showing us from 2000 here and you can see how this stuff starts to penetrate government there's key men Richard Thaler um, David uh, Lesborn um, uh, psychologist Daniel Gunman and down here we've got Jill Rutter picking it up to bring it into DEFRA it goes on here through 2006 2008 uh, national social marketing uh, going we've got the nudge starting to come in and uh, a conference now on behavioral change through to 2009 personal responsibility animal spirits maybe we'll get Alex comment on that in a minute and here's Thaler again coming in uh, Sir Michael uh, Bichard uh, Greg Beals the government's being saturated with this stuff and this is Mindspace that we warned about in UK column key document mindspace.pdf if you want to search it on the internet here's the uh, label through to it and David Halpin and here we've got virtually every part of government now involved including local government we've got conferences on it we've got a lord's inquiry we've got defra setting up its center of expertise on influencing behaviors and then finally the behavioral insight team gets sold off so huge detail alex just very quickly this isn't as simple as just um a nice benign government using applied psychology to get people to do the right thing there seems to be a rather deeper agenda at work there certainly is Brian let me just show viewers the front cover of George A Akerlof and Robert J Schiller's book Animal Spirits uh, which is surtitled the new must read in Obama world said Michael Grunewald of Time magazine because it coincided with the Obama administration coming in in 2009 there is the cover uh, you can see these uh, ape-like gremlins uh, clinging on to peaks and troughs in a in a chart sorry I'm having to reverse the direction here of course but although it's not very sharp on my phone you can see that these people have basically been dehumanized and put back in their reptile brains and that's very much what I think all of us speaking at AB 11.1 in our different philosophical viewpoints and expertises were saying uh, is that we have an enemy that doesn't like us and doesn't like our humanity and wishes us to respond on command pavlovian responses yeah we're being trained as the dogs what's the significance of uh, this applied behavioral psychology with covid well let's just look at this wiring diagram we put out uh, several months ago showing bill gates in the middle of the government's agenda on covid but what we were really interested with was the sage the scientific advisory group which was using applied behavioral psychology the man driving it there was uh, David Halpin and this is where the public is facing something they're not equipped to deal with the government is changing their minds and thoughts 
and the government's own Mindspace document says that the public isn't going to know. So here's a key quote coming in with uh, David Halpin. With knowledge of these cognitive processes, we can make changes to the options people have, the choice environment, in order to encourage certain choices, or we can explicitly design choices to harness or overcome common cognitive biases. And uh, if I take it through to this, this one, to facilitate the government's COVID response, we've heightened people's sense of fear to help them choose the lockdown policy. Now that's my words, but that's exactly what the government has done through SAGE and SPY-B. They've used applied behavioural psychology to make people more scared than they should be of the virus so that we will adhere to the government's policies and agenda. I mean, those are your words, but it's not it's not an unfair representation of the position because we showed the documents back in March. Well, it's from, in their own. Yeah, uh, the minutes of their own documents said we want to ramp up the fear level. So we're, we're just demonstrating that they do have the applied psychology techniques to do that. Um, now, uh, lots of emails in uh, over the last day or so um, after uh, Simon Dolan tweeted out about this. Uh, so. This is the government must urgently consider the human rights implications of COVID-19 measures, says Joint uh, Committee on Human Rights. Now, it's from September, uh, but Simon Dolan was uh, tweeting out a particular aspect of this, which I'll show you in one second. Uh, but uh, the Joint Committee on Human Rights uh, published the report in September on the government's response to COVID-19 with, uh, with respect to human rights implications. Uh, and it proposed that the government must urgently address a number of issues to ensure that its handling of the coronavirus pandemic is human rights compliant. Um, now, in March, the Joint Committee uh, announced that it was going to start that scrut scrutiny uh, and it called for evidence. And in particular, the committee announced that it would be looking at legislation that the government, uh, for, that the government could bring forward to contain and control uh, the COVID-19 outbreak and how those measures would be implemented uh, and how the response could be differently affecting different groups of people. Uh, but it was this uh, that was uh, particularly of interest to Simon Dolan and lots of you who uh, were emailing in about it. Uh, this is written evidence from Dr. Lisa Forsberg, Dr. Ira, Isra Black, Dr. Thomas Douglas and Dr. Jonathan Pugh. And it's about compulsory vaccination for COVID-19 and human rights law. Uh, and uh, well, th that was they put in a, a, a quite a detailed paper as written uh, con consultation to the uh, to the committee. But they also published in the Journal of Medical Eth Ethics this article, Compulsory Medical Intervention versus external constraint in pandemic control. And they did these uh, more or less at the same time. And what they're saying here is uh, that a question is raised, would compulsory medical intervention for COVID-19 be justified? In the first part of this article, we show that in England, there would be significant legal barriers to it. But in the second part, we present a conditional ethical case for seeking to overcome those barriers. Uh, we argue that if the permissive English approach to external constraints for COVID-19 has been justified, there is at least a defensible case uh, for permitting some compulsory medical interventions. So in other words, uh, if you know, the lockdown is justified, they're saying, then therefore you could take that a step further. Uh, this is because legal barriers aside, it is morally no harder to justify safe, effective and only moderately invasive compulsory medical interventions for COVID-19 than some of the external constraints that have already been authorised for the control of the condition in England. Now, it has to be 
uh, stated, of course, that these people have no particular uh, authority to impose anything. They are making recommendations to a committee. Actually, in the committee's report, they didn't comment on any on compulsory vaccination at all. They didn't. They only mentioned the word vaccine once, uh, and it was it wasn't anything uh, to do with this. Uh, there's two points here, uh, Alex. Uh, maybe I could. Uh, ask you about your thoughts on this. First of all, they're they're catching this in the language of human rights law, uh, and whether whether human right whether it would be a breach of human rights. Um, so there's that, uh, and I can't remember what the other one is off the top of my head. So let let's deal with that one first. I think uh, Michael probably managed to dig up both of your uh, points in what I say. Again, I can only recommend that people listen to our podcast series available on Spreaker. SoundCloud and Apple Podcast, as well as direct from ukcolumn.org, Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, because in the episode we just uh, released, we talk about common law and juries. Now, to get to the brass tacks of this, which was actually submitted to Parliament's uh, committee on the 22nd of July, these philosophers of law and biomedical ethics are presenting fact-free arguments in what you correctly describe as a detailed, well, there it is, if you print it four pages to a side, you can actually get it on one, one sheet of A4, detailed arguments. But all it says really is, um, at the start, it says we don't really know what compulsory vaccination is because they're hinting it could be anything from Australian style, no benefits without jabs, right through to strapping people down to, um, uh, to a trolley. Right, so they leave that politely uh, undecided, the two Oxford and two York academics. But at the end, they, they basically say, well, we presented two arguments. We got away with the lockdown. Uh, they actually use the word parity to mean we got away with it. It's the same, same degree of infringement of rights. And at the end, they say we got away with compulsory treatment for mental health patients or those declared to be so. So that's the mental health parity argument. Why is this significant? One of my favourite phrases, why? Well, because these philosophical arguments have been sought by Parliament and the judicial system so that when challenges are taken to the highest courts in the land, so uh, the High Court, the UK Supreme Court, and for as long as uh, British citizens can still appeal to them, uh, the ECHR in Strasbourg, um, it will be judges sitting alone uh, considering philosophical arguments. Well, we got away with that and this is much of a muchness. It's only at the level of a common law crime of assault or a charge of that nature being pinned on people in a court of first instance in England and Wales or another common law jurisdiction that a jury will be, uh, be asked to decide whether this was right or wrong. Right or wrong, in, the, in that visceral sense, do not come into it when judges sitting without juries consider philosophical points. And although it sounds a bit uh, arcane, I have to make this point. At the end of their uh, paper, these four philosophical uh, or philosophy of law academics are saying that the derogation from, meaning doing away with in practice, the derogation from the common law principle of no treatment without consent, i.e. it's no longer God-given absolute uh, in, uh, immunity is compatible with the ECHR. That's not the EU, that's an older body in Strasbourg. The very reason why the EU is not a member of the Council of Europe in Strasbourg is because it says we have our court in the EU court in Luxembourg and it's the highest court in the universe. And uh, the ECHR, which would consider this philosophical stuff, says no, no, if you want to become a member of our club, you have to accept that we're supreme in the universe. Now the British government is saying no, uh, this UK Supreme Court, what used to be the Law Lords, will be the highest court in this quadrant of the galaxy from now on, the British Isles. Right? So there's a game going on here. Uh, in amongst all this, the United Nations with its various bodies, I think of UNESCO with its guidance on treatment, I think it's principle six, still say you cannot interfere with the body without consent and well-informed consent at that. So even behind the scenes, 
the EU is uh, in, and the UN are less corrupt and less philosophically minded to do away with our liberties uh, than the court in Strasbourg is, which has got a long history of telling states, um, you know, you, you mustn't champion the individual. Well, there's been a mixed record, but that's what it comes down to. There's a massive fight behind the scenes. People who don't do international law for, uh, for a hobby or a living can, can be forgiven for not seeing the wood for the trees. The long and the short of it is where there's a jury, they will say, this is wrong. No. Where there is not a jury, judges will stroke their chins and say, oh, yes, you're quite right. This is nothing worse than we've got away with before. And all of a sudden that comes down, the shutter comes down on your rights and God-given immunities. Yeah. Uh, well, yes, that's right. And now uh, you're talking about lockdown. Well, well, just before we move on to that, yes, the other point I was going to make, Alex, uh, just briefly, was... Uh, that of course there may not be a need. For, I mean, they're talking in their in their presentation there, in their in their evidence, and also in their article um, about uh, the potential need for for mandatory vaccination in order to to let people get back to their their daily lives. So the point I've made before is that the, this may not be required because, of course, uh, you know, corporations may say, well, you're only allowed to enter our shop, or you're only allowed to get on our airplane, or whatever. Um, assuming you've got, you can prove that you've had a, a vaccination, and so that so that could be done at, it's effectively mandatory, but it's not government imposed. But at least people have the option under those circumstances uh, to not use that service, not take that flight, or not uh, buy from that particular supermarket or whatever it happens to be. Uh, but mandatory vac vaccination is is uh, you know a, would be a dangerous uh, place to go um, because that choice is removed. It's straw man stuff, Mike. It is you, a specific man or woman who exist in flesh and blood under God, must undergo this assault because of a nebulous uh, concept of all of us. You know, this comes in various forms as, as countries tend towards Marxism. In Scotland, for instance, with the common wheel movement, there's this uh, catchphrase, all of us first. In other countries, you hear none of us left behind. Uh, so it, it's the, the general common good, you know, which sadly is even in the preamble to the US Constitution. Uh, and in equivalents in other countries, that has been twisted to the point where a judge will say, well, uh, Mr. Bloggs doesn't actually have any rights uh, because Joe Average has the rights and Joe Average exists in my mind. And I won't have any of those real plebs in my courtroom uh, in their flesh and blood state to say, no, actually, it's not what all of us want or require uh, because, you know, the, it's, it's pure Platonism. The idea of man in my head must take priority and precedence. This is why the common law has juries. Yes, right. Well, um, now, of course, later on this afternoon, uh, there's going to be a vote in the Commons uh, on Boris's uh, lockdown uh, announced at the weekend. Uh, of course, the lockdown starts on the 5th of November. I'm sure that was just by accident that he chose that date. Yeah, maybe not. Yep. Uh, but anyway, they're going to vote on it. Uh, now, there was a bit of discussion. I mean, Boris went to the, the Commons on Monday to explain, explain himself, and there was a bit of... Uh, uh, pushback from various people. Uh, let's start off with, uh, with Sammy Wilson. Defeat. We've surrendered our freedoms. We've surrendered our economy. We have driven people to despair with daily doses of doom-laden data. Can he promise us that once we get past this latest lockdown, that if there's another upsurge, we're not going to get a, same, a bout of the same destructive medicine, but we will get a policy which allows this country and individuals to run their own lives and not be ruled by this virus. 
so that's what he had to say. Now, it was a bit ironic because, of course, uh, Northern Ireland's been in lockdown for a couple of weeks already and, uh, and he's DUP and Northern Ireland Assembly run by the DUP. But he wasn't the only one uh, to, uh, to speak out. So let's, uh, let's listen to Charles Walker. And uh, Alex, this is quite spectacular. We'll uh, discuss it afterwards. Sir Charles Walker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, I will not be supporting the government's legislation on Wednesday because as we drift further into an authoritarian, coercive state, the only legal mechanism, the only legal mechanism left open to me is to vote against that legislation. That is all we've got left, Mr Speaker. If my constituents protest, they get arrested. Given that the people of this country will never, ever forgive the political class for criminalising parents seeing children and children seeing parents. Does the Prime Minister not agree with me? Now is the time for a written constitution that guarantees the fundamental rights of our constituents, a constitution underpinned and enforced by the Supreme Court. Prime Minister. Uh, well, uh, Mr Speaker, I think what the people of this country want, uh, rather than uh, delectable disputations on a written constitution, uh, is to defeat the coronavirus. But yeah, well, Alex, I, I don't even know where to start with that. Perhaps uh, we need to encourage uh, our viewers to send uh, the our, our constitutional podcast series uh, to him. Uh, that's probably a good place to start, actually. Um, there is even skullduggery over this word written. <clears throat> the technical word, which we haven't mentioned in our first episode on constitutional design, <clears throat> is codified. Uh, but even if you say codified, uh, Magna Carta and the Declaration of Rights being treaties, which is the point that Parliament won't accept, being treaties are anterior and superior to Parliament and above the, the reach of Parliament. Uh, it's going, like going back to the Thatcher era when I was a politically interested boy here, the dulcet tones of the DUP saying never, 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 and, and the suave voice of the, the, the Tory wets, as they were called in Thatcher's day, saying uh, I'm a one nation Tory, the mothers are suffering and so on. Uh, Two prongs, you know, uh, against Her Majesty's government, but one more sincere than the other, both with their shortcomings. Um, Sir Charles Walker was the previous chairman of the 1922 committee, which is how the backbench Tory MPs have a say in government. He's been succeeded by the somewhat more reliable Graham Brady, uh, but both of them have, shall we say, uh, serpentine ways about them at times. Uh, I think certain details elude them. Um, they have, of course, like the Queen herself, when she was being tutored by a Fabian in the Constitution, they've been told their whole life long we don't have a written Constitution. Uh, it's, uh, it's the odd champion uh, like John Hurst uh, or John Bingley who discover details uh, such as you know, the, the, the treaty nature of the Declaration of Right, uh, which have been so obscured that the House of Lords told um, Bingley uh, that he was the first man ever to ask for the role on which the Declaration of Right was written before Parliament convened. Uh, and they said it was, I think I remember correctly, stuffed in the back room or even lying on the floor at one stage in the 19th century. Nobody had ever catalogued or transcribed it. Uh, completely different from how other countries treat their written constitutions because the game is we supposedly don't have one. So if it's left lying gathering dust in, the, in Westminster, then obviously uh, the game can be, can be continued. But a YouTuber who's now dormant, who goes by the name of S. Williamism, has made this point repeatedly and eloquently on his strolls around central London with a camera. He said that uh, through Brexit and now through various health crises, um, the deep state based in the cabinet office has always said, yuppie, now we are free uh, to cast off any uh, external form of human rights, philosophical law and repatriate it. 
So we will not get common law codified if we get a single document uh, in any constitutional convention. It will be handpicked people, participatory document democracy, so NGOs speaking on behalf of that mythical all of us again. The common man himself doesn't get a look in, only the shadow of himself. And what we'll end up with is, well, there's a bit of God, there's a bit of immunity, but there's also a bit of uh, human rights, and the latter has to trump the former, so uh, lie down and take the jab. Yes, indeed. I'll just uh, add the bit, what the last MP speaking, so I've forgotten his name there already, but uh, he's talking, he says, we're drifting into an authoritarian state. Well, we're not drifting. There's no drift about it. This is calculated policy. And I think that whilst he's probably coming in at the right angle, we see so many of these MPs who simply do not understand they're in the middle of a system which is attacking the public. Mm. Uh, let's come on to... Um, well, terror, because that's the latest thing. We're now to be, uh, we've been upgraded to severe. Um, I noticed that on the, this is the front page of the Telegraph, and um, they'd put the um, intro to the UK terror threat level being upgraded was amongst the puzzles and obituaries and cartoons, which I thought was pretty appropriate, really, Mike. Um, but um, when we got to the BBC, they were going it with uh, Pretty Patel, um, so she said that um, JTAC had changed the threat level from across the United Kingdom from substantial to severe. Uh, the British public should be alert, but not alarmed. So uh, you you alert today? Very. Yeah, I'm alert as well. We don't know what we're alert for, but we must be alert, but not alarmed. And this is only a precautionary measure following the terrible incident in France last week. Um, she says the first and most important duty of the government is obviously to protect the British public. And obviously we're doing that and we'll continue to do that through the measures and tools that we put in place in dealing with terrorism and terrorist activity. Alex, this lady is not actually communicating. She's just regurgitating words that she thinks she understands. And although she speaks very eloquently, um, I don't think actually on this subject she's too bright, but perhaps I'm being harsh today. Well, there are particularly glamorous uh, ladies in politics who, you know, parche feminism actually are intelligent as well as taking manicured care of their nails. But I fear that Priti Patel, she's not quite as, as awful as some of the others we've seen in the Home Secretary's position, but she, she does take a lot of briefings from her, uh, her advisors as they all do these days. They're deliberately kept too busy to think. Um, you remember in the Cold War, uh, we were told, be alert. Uh, it's a, a Second World War slogan, but in, in uh, the 80s, it was kind of, if the Soviets don't get you, the Irish Republicans will. Uh, and the, the joke that arose at the time was, be alert, be alert. Your country needs alerts. Well, yeah. I think we've worked out what a alert is. It's, it's yeah. a straw man. Uh, it's the straw man that the government and the courts put in front of themselves in their ideation and say, well, here is uh, Joe Average. Uh, or, or, or uh, Johnny P, Johnny Q Public, as the Americans sometimes say, and and he he must be more vigilant. Not you or I in particular. It's the same whiz that or, or wheeze that's pulled in courts, isn't it? It's uh, as long as you can look busy, which is you know I was told several times at GCHQ at high terrorist alert bases, look busy, come back from leave, sit at your desk and look like you're typing. I was literally told that by bosses one, two, and three levels above me because we've got ministers coming or whatever. Well, but that's that's enough to get the job done uh, as far as some of these political players are concerned. Yeah. 
Well, she was challenged by the BBC and the interviewer said, what can you tell us about the work that's going on to counter the threat level, which is now elevated, you say, to severe? I've just noticed I've got an extra A there in JTAC, so don't worry about that. We'll show the body in a minute. Uh, first of all, JTAC is an independent body. You should feel encouraged by that, Mike. And they have made the judgment in light of the recent events in France and, uh, and Austria that, that this alert should go up. So they're independent and they have done it. And then she says a lot of other words. And she says the police and the excellent intelligence agencies and the police and the intelligence agencies are, are policing more visibly across the country. She doesn't really say anything because she doesn't understand what's going on. But this is the hub of it. This beats JTAC. I've got it tagged there properly now. A self-standing organisation comprised of representatives from 16 government departments and agencies, accountable to the Director General MI5, um, reporting through to the Joint Intelligence Committee and ultimately overseen by the Cabinet Office. Um, so... Alex, I was puzzled to see how this is an independent organisation. It isn't, Brian. Um, I saw it being set up. I used to slip into Thames House and give these guys the briefings when they were new to post, the first generation incumbents. And uh, they would say to me things like, you've got to do the obligatory new annual JTAC threat assessment for Blankistan. You've got anything on Blankistan? And I would start with them with, well, Blankistan is a landlocked country formerly in the Soviet Union and so on. Uh, and I think I've said it before, but I'll say it again. This isn't to deride the JTAC guys, but to deride the, the brief they were given. Uh, they had to do their first annual threat assessment on the level of Islamic terrorism in, in Iceland. And I remember a couple of colleagues and me being in fits of laughter when it came in because it said there are not many Muslims in Iceland. That is probably because it is a cold country. Well, they've come on a bit since uh, then, 15 years since, but no, that it, it's a mate work scheme. And now we have another one of these new agencies, uh, the Biosecurity Centre. So they will, in their independent mode, say uh, we all have to take the jab because the government has independently, through its Biosecurity Centre, i.e. the Cabinet Office again, uh, decided that we must. Yeah. Well, what Pretty Patel did get right was she said that you can expect to see more police on the streets. And thank you to our viewer that sent in this photograph of uh, tooled up armed police on the streets in Rygate. And, and um, those police were kind enough to say they also believe that uh, we're going to see a lot more armed police on the streets in every city. And then we have this, the Echo Army called in to help make sure businesses uh, following the COVID rules army called in to help make sure businesses are following the covid rules and what's this about well it's come through the merseyside resilience forum uh, a request was made under the military aid for civil authorities process to support the additional work that environmental health officers across the region are being asked to undertake so in comes the army but it's all been arranged by the deputy chief constable of merseyside police who's acting under another hat this request has been agreed and means there'll be a small number of fully qualified personnel working across the six authorities for a period of eight weeks. So maybe we're into December for lockdown as well. Uh, they will not be in uniform. They're being deployed to provide additional capacity on a time limited basis for each of our environmental health teams carrying out the same duties as our permanent EH environmental health personnel. Well, of course, um, she's really talking, well, as a policeman or as the chair of the Resilience Forum, 
uh, the two are identical and interlinked. There's no separation of powers. But if you don't know what the forum is and you want to have a look at the members, I had to video this because there are so many of them and we're running short of time. Um, but we've, we've, we've got everybody from the Coast Guard uh, to the NHS to the police. Um, we've even got a few uh, rotary clubs involved, P Public Health England, um, BT, NHS again, um, Health and Safety Executive, Highways England, it goes on and on. There's at least another 10 of these. So Alex, I'll just come back to you again. No separation of powers whatsoever here. And obviously the public simply do not know what these people decide behind closed doors. No, which is why we're going to get in future weeks into more of the detail in our podcasts uh, on the Constitution on uh, how many layers can cling onto the underbelly of government before you've delegated too far. Hint, you can't, but it's done a lot. Uh, Mike will talk about that in a moment. By the way, uh, while I'm on, uh, we won't be able to record extra time today. I don't mind myself how long we go on with the main news. Uh, and sorry to those who were looking forward to last week's extra time with me. For technical reasons, we weren't able to record it. Uh, but you know, a week from now, God willing, we'll be able to get back to our usual format of extra time. Uh, yes, indeed. And uh, well, just to let everybody know that episode two of the Dissidents' Guide to the Constitution is uh, on the UK Column website now, and uh, uh, and on the various uh, podcasting platforms. Uh, it's all about common law, as Alex has said. And if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to uh, ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, and uh, just to let you know that episode nine of Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree is also on the UK Column website now. So that leads us in where? Uh, well, to Christine Lagarde, uh, because uh, this uh, lovely lady, of course, uh, is now... Uh, the uh, head of the European Central Bank. Uh, and, uh, well, we've been talking uh, about the Great Reset. Uh, it was certainly discussed quite a lot at AV 11.1 over the weekend. We've been discussing it on this programme. Uh, and one of the aspects of that, of course, is, is this move to uh, digital currency. Um, so have a listen to Christine uh, first. We are still in the review and consideration stage, but we've just launched a, a public consultation so that consumers and Europeans can actually express their preference and tell us whether they would be happy to use a, a digital euro just in the way they use a euro coin or a euro banknote, knowing that it is uh, central bank money that is uh, available and, and that they can rely upon. So there you go, central bank money that uh, they can rely upon. Well, interestingly enough, she tweeted that out uh, yesterday, uh, and uh, in the same tweet thread, she tweeted this out. I was honoured to provide my signature for our banknotes, and it was a great to hold the finished product in my hands uh, with, a, with a picture there. So I thought that was a little bit ironic, uh, Brian, but uh, uh, this is the consultation page. Uh, there's no title on it. There's nothing to uh, indicate what it is. It sort of has a, a little European Central Bank logo in the top left. Uh, and uh, you're able to sign up with your email address if you want to find out how to take part. Um, so how you search for that, I have no idea, um, but uh, it is there. I guess they're hoping as few people as possible uh, do actually join in. Uh, but Alex, this uh, move towards digital currency and uh, cashless society, uh, it's clearly moving on a pace, uh, almost speed. unstoppable. 
Yes, does Madame Lagarde promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of 20 euros, uh, weighed out in silver or gold, like the old English banknotes? I don't think so. No, there's so much being said about blockchain and digital currency. Um, to cut it to 30 seconds, uh, it's going to happen. It's going to be their money, not ours. And you cannot expect to have any rights to see the money tomorrow that you had in that currency system today, nor can you even expect to be given access to that currency without acceding to infringements on your bodily integrity, the way things are going. The only solution is to do what dissidents down the ages have done, religious, philosophical communities and others, uh, which is to barter and to be as self-sufficient as possible. Um, okay, look, Alex, we're more than out of time here, but let's just uh, let's just finish off with a couple more uh, bits from you here. First of all, uh, Australia, uh, or sorry, no, this is the UK, uh, more noteworthy lockdown lawsuits. On the right, people should definitely look at thebernician.net, I think it is, uh, and sign up for his newsletters, I would recommend, because uh, he has to put a lot of safeguards on the website, which is annoying, so get his newsletters and you get all this content. He's a very learned um, man of the people, common law uh, champion. I haven't mentioned him in the previous segments on this, so do go to that. Look at rational.global as well. Oh, at the particular point of the Venetian is that he's privately prosecuting members of parliament for causing harm. Again, common law champion uh, and common law rides high here. On the left, in another common law jurisdiction, you have Rocco uh, Galati, an Italo-Caladian, talking on rebel news uh, to uh, Ezra Levant in this case, uh, great in great detail with screenshots on screen in that video about his case against the Canadian government in the same way. So I wanted to mention these for the sake of completeness. The Bernician, Rational.Global and Rocco Galati on uh, uh, Ezra Levant's uh, rebel media. Now, Australia has details as well that are worth looking at. 70 Australian policemen, I think all in New South Wales, uh, have, as reported by TAP News uh, on the left here, and Cops for COVID, Truth on the, the Right, they've put together a, a brief, which if people want to search for it, they can look for um, open letter concerning the police enforcement of ongoing COVID-19 restrictions. It's an October 26th letter to Michael Fuller, the police commissioner of New South Wales. And I'll just hold up on screen how much there is. This is two pages to view. So there we are, there's a front, uh, a back, and a third. So that's six sides of A4 uh, uh, viewed in normal size. Uh, with graphs saying we're not going to enforce this anymore. There are also videos going around social media of members of this 70 strong policeman dissident club saying no, we're not going to do it. Um, so there we are. Uh, the Austrian Constitutional Court looking to Europe and the civil law tradition has uh, very interestingly said in its monthly updates, the Constitutional Court has determined that several COVID-19 measures, that's imposed by executive order of course, as is the way now, were unlawful. Uh, regarding restrictions on numbers of guests in catering facilities, restrictions on numbers of people assembling, and it's put in brackets, e.g. discotheques, that's probably more popular than saying e.g. churches or political meetings, but it applies to all of them, and the obligation to wear masks in public places, including public service offices or Amstroimer. So it was even unlawful to say you are not coming in to get your passport issued or whatever unless you put a mask on, which is uh, a very interesting set of developments. Uh, that I think you can more or less count the exceptions easier than the rule now. How many uh, countries, Supreme Courts, have not yet found something unlawful in what their national governments have done this year? Yes. Uh, I think we should leave it there. I think we should. Uh, I've got to say, very strong news today, but things are moving around us very quickly. Um, people still asking, what can we do? We will keep saying we are supplying information is use that information to challenge your MPs in a polite, measured, evidence way. 
and stay on the case do not let them get away with the fob offs because it's uh, apparent that at least some of them are starting to get a little bit nervous about what's going on so they need some encouragement and uh, I think we'll also end by saying that uh, Ian Crane's alternative view event over the weekend went exceptionally well uh, some really good uh, talks a lot of information coming out about what was going on Alex yes uh, we ran out of time for my final point which will go into an article instead I think for the website but it's just while people are listening in audio as well uh, the meat of this uh, controversy about Boleskine House, which now the Daily Mail has picked up on, well, via the Inverness Courier, via the Fresh Start Foundation, uh, it's an example of UK column leading the news and not being acknowledged. That's a thankless task we have, but we do it. The point is, uh, as people will see in the article when it goes up, which is a letter written to Highland Council, uh, it has been claimed that the name, the Gallic name for uh, Boleskine House, under which the uh, planning application was uh, was filed to, to obscure it, it's claimed that the original name in Gallic is pronounced uh, Baleuskian, which sounds nothing like Boleskine. And evidence is going up on the website this afternoon that it clearly is another Gallic name, um, which is uh, Boleskine, which sounds exactly like Boleskine in English. Uh, details will go up. That's a rather obscure point to end on. But the long and the short of it is uh, it seems that people have been dissembling in order to hide from the public uh, attempts to revive Alistair Crowley's old mansion and to turn it into a shrine of Satanism. Yeah, thank you for that, Alex. We'll, we'll do some more detail on that in coming coming news news is with uh, Alec, uh, David. David Scott. Yeah, got there in the end. That's it for today. Thank you all very much for joining us. And a big thank you to the team in New Zealand. I think you were getting a little bit worried as to whether we were still around, but we are at the moment. Uh, but it's obvious that UK, no longer a democratic uh, country, uh, unarmed police should be the uh, norm here. We're now into armed police on the streets. And it's clear that a coup has taken place in Westminster. We'll carry on reporting. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.